Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to New York City. It's July 26th, 1972. This is it. The last show of the Rolling Stones North American Tour. Mick Jagger is also turning 29 today. God, in his infinite wisdom, has arranged an eclipse of the moon as a light show. As promoter Bill Graham would say, New York is New York is New York. Till you do it there, it hasn't happened. The city's been waiting for months, and Madison Square Garden's now under a state of siege. They've come from all over, from Nutley to Paramus, from White Lake to Swan Lake, from Whitestone to Rockaway. Over the Throng's Neck Bridge and through the Midtown Tunnel, by subway and bus, the crowds walking, pushing, and shoving in the streets. The blocks between 31st and 34th Street and between 7th and 8th Avenue have been transformed into a bustling marketplace with buyers and sellers haggling. Ticket! Ticket! Who wants a ticket? 75! Hey man, it was 50 a minute ago. Check around, 75. I'll make the price. You gotta pay what it costs. A blue Pontiac with jersey plates rounds the corner, inching his way through the crowd of t-shirt vendors and souvenir peddlers. 150 for a pair of tickets, the driver calls. The next time he comes around the block, it's $200 for a pair of tickets. $200, Inside, stage manager Chip Monk is beside himself with excitement. This is the night he's been waiting for since the tour began two months earlier. The errant genius behind the innovative stage and lighting rig, plus some of the most innovative hotel room demolitions in rock history, he can't wait to put his twisted mind to the ultimate test. Chip has supervised the Monterey Pop Festival, George Harrison's concert for Bangladesh, and Woodstock. They're all nothing compared to this. This is the night that it will all peak. On stage at Madison Square Garden, total chaos must reign. His plan has gone through several incarnations. 
first, he wanted to rent an elephant. Then he looked into releasing chickens from the rafters high above the crowd. Confetti, rose petals, all of this pales to the scheme he's about to unleash on the Rolling Stones and their unsuspecting public. Shockingly, the tour's resident Hellraiser, Keith Richards, has nothing to do with this. He's been keeping to himself. He hides out in his room, brought down and depressed. The energy he's been husbanding to get himself through the tour is gone. He's making it to the shows, and then he crashes for 12 or 14 hours, spending most of his time asleep. New York was so awful, one tour insider says. After all that time, all of a sudden, you were by yourself. You were nothing. That description comes courtesy of Robert Greenfield, the legendary rock journalist chronicled the band's U.S. trek in his landmark book, STP, A Journey Through America with the Rolling Stones. He was there in southern France when the band recorded Exile on Main Street, the album the tour sought to promote. He was there during rehearsals in Hollywood, and he was there for opening night in Vancouver when hordes of angry kids tried to invade the venue. And he was also there during the final night in New York City, as the bonds that kept the Motley crew together began to evaporate. Everyone went their separate ways after that, forced to make sense of the life-changing experience they just shared, all on their own. In addition to Greenfield and his never-before-heard tape archive of the Stones in their 70s exile-era glory, we'll also be joined by Gary Stromberg, a rock PR supremo who's represented a whole jukebox of the 20th century's greatest artists. My name's Jordan Runtog, and this is the Stones Touring Party. The last week in July is the most desperate time of the year in New York City. As Robert Greenfield indelibly put it in STP, it's a low point when the summer seems to stretch away like a great expanse of burning desert waste. The cool days of September are light years away, and a sort of mad dog spirit is everywhere. The great buildings drip sweat from whining air conditioners. The asphalt cracks, and most people seek a hole to die in. I want to say now for the record that New York, in the heat of the summer, in 1972, was the ninth circle of hell. I grew up in New York. I lived in Manhattan. I'm from Brooklyn. I have never seen anything like this. Just one short, iconic scene. Oh, we stayed in the worst hotel in the history of show business, the Statler Hilton. The room was a closet, basically. You wanted to hang yourself up from the... I mean, that's how small the rooms were. It was... There you go. That was so awful. But on my way to the garden for the first show... I saw two cabbies, one behind another, two taxi drivers, come to a stop at the red light. As though synchronized, both driver doors flew open. The cabbies jumped out. They punched one another <laughs> repeatedly. The light changed, and then they drove away. I've never seen anything like this. The insanity is intensified by the crazed clamor for tickets. New York's been waiting for months and supply and demand has done its thing. Whatever the price was now, New York would pay it. A lucky few could try their luck with a phone call. The New York imperative governs everything. 
Like incessant children, their strident voices demand attention. Right now! I need tickets! I gotta have press passes! Do you understand? This is essential! A matter of highest priority! Robbie Robertson of the band needs four tickets, and Columbia and Paramount called earlier today. The phones are ringing all the time, and demand is escalated into screaming hysterics. Listen, you bastard! You know who I am! Those without friends in high places try their best on the ground. And those who strike out there are forced to get creative. Some showed up at the stage door with fake STP badges. Others posed as camera crews. These folks got the boot immediately. Rookies. But one group got a little more daring. God love New York. You couldn't touch a ticket. It was sold out. There were guys who presented themselves in full gear as New York City firefighters who had to come backstage in order to inspect, you know, the fire for extinguishers. Rudge threw them out. They weren't real fire guys. If they were wearing those coats, it was blazing summer. They had the gear. It must cost them. Where did you get the unis? Trying to talk their way back. I mean, it's New York, man. Garden security was equally over the top. Some would say alarmingly so. Members of the STP managerial squad tangle with local rent-a-cops who get a little too harsh with overzealous fans. One blackjacks a kid, opening his head with a spray of blood, leading to an all-out battle royale backstage. Guards were so tight, they forced Stevie Wonder, the Stones' opening act, to use the front entrance on 34th Street rather than be driven directly into the backstage through a passageway, despite the fact that he's, you know, blind. Even the Stones themselves weren't immune. While being shuttled to the venue in a camper van before one of their four gigs, a New York City policeman orders the vehicle to a halt. For whatever reason, the very tired driver refuses. The cop responds by pulling his gun, pointing it at both the driver and Mick Jagger, who's standing directly behind him. The aggressive gate crashing was just one reason to stay vigilant. Another was the fact that they were back in Hell's Angels territory. The motorcycle gang had promised revenge after taking the fall for the deadly outcome at the Stones' 1969 concert at the Altamont Speedway. If they were going to make their move, this was their last chance. They were so nervous about New York because the Hells Angels clubhouse was on 2nd Street down by the Fillmore. And they were pretty vibrant in New York. They had a real chapter there and they were serious. They certainly didn't get into the garden wearing the colors. Tour manager Peter Rudge has vowed to keep the band and their crew safe on this two-month tour. So far, he's been true to his word. But bomb and assassination threats have amplified in recent days. So he's forced to take additional precautions. Like the royal family flying on separate planes in case of catastrophe, the band members are all put in different hotels. The code names they've been using thus far on the trip are changed to wrong foot the wrongdoers. Keith Richards becomes Count Ziggenpuss. Bill Wyman and his girlfriend Astrid become Lord and Lady Getting. Mick Jagger and his wife Bianca are Mr. and Mrs. Shelley. The Shelleys are booked into the suite where Richard Nixon usually stays when he comes to New York. The room next door is being used to screen all arriving packages and birthday gifts from Mick. As sax player Bobby Keys told Robert Greenfield at the time, it was all starting to get a little heavy. 
Here they are, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. And then we, then we got uh, New York to go, where it's, it's really turning into sort of cloak and dagger rock and roll, you know. Everybody's changing their names, no one's staying in the same, the group isn't Could staying people paranoid? in the hotel. Well, well, I mean, it was uh, part of Peter's uh, security, plan. security thing, because I mean, like, we've made it through practically the whole tour with nothing serious going down yet. And we still have New York to go, which if anything's going to get crazy, man, it can get crazy there. We've got four concerts to do in New York, which gives, it's not like just doing right, one concert. Right, We've got four concerts to do. All the publicity surrounding the tour, building up to, yeah. building up to the New York thing, man. You don't know what's going to Bassist Bill Wyman was told not to order any room service for fears that the food might be poisoned. Needless to say, he was distressed by this request. I did pay a bit of attention to that one. No, it was, everybody was saying, don't eat the food. You know, and I said to the promoter, um, have you tasted the food? So he said, yes, I've tasted everything. It's all right. But it was kind of a half joke and a kind of a wary thing as well. Even the usually placid Mick Taylor was getting annoyed with it all. Security arrangements in New York were so rigorous, you know, so so well organized that all I ever saw, all, all I ever saw was the inside of my hotel room and um, the concert hall. I mean, I was told that I couldn't even go out shopping and that I couldn't I couldn't order food from room service because somebody might slip into the kitchen and put poison in in my um, curry, you know. Really, this is absolutely serious, you know. I mean, when you're told things like that, what can you do? Personally, I find all those security arrangements very restricting, and I think they make you much more paranoid than, than what you really have reason to be. Some of them are insulting, you know, because they make you a child. Of course they are, of course they are. But I mean, I, did, I ignored them anyway. Every other time I've been to New York, I've just gone out, the same as anybody else would, and gone about my business. That's exactly what I did. For the Stones themselves, the revelry was kept to a minimum. The inner circle has been scattered across Manhattan. And although some people check out of their hotels and into Keith's to keep the party going, it's not the same as being loose and looking for craziness on the road. Keith himself seems lost. There are dark shadows beneath his eyes. His skin is the color of cheesecloth and drawn tight against the mask of his face. Aside from the show... He's mostly alone. At long last, his superhuman energy reserves have run dry. I didn't feel it until I actually got into New York, where, you know, it was like, all right, New York, have a really good time, you know, New York, last few gigs, and in actual fact, everybody just sort of huddled in their rooms and did the gig, and except for brief appearances. Bizarre parties. Yeah, I mean, everybody just ran away from them, you know, couldn't take it, and we just sort of hold up, you know. That's when the sort of spirit of the whole tour just sort of drifted away in New York. Keith manages to drag himself to a press reception held at the Four Seasons Hotel after one of the gigs. He's there in body only, and even then, only barely. New York is media turf, and an invitation is a hot commodity. Anything that gets you within shouting distance of the stones is worth money. The chosen ones retire to the quiet corners of the room, doing blow off the tips of buck knives while they wait for the guests of honor to arrive. Where are they? Is Mick coming? 
Conversations are had, but no one maintains eye contact. Everyone watches the door to ensure the stones won't slip in unnoticed. They titter like teenagers. Where does Mick get his rings, man? What about those scarves? How should I say hello to him? Do you think he'll remember me from the last one of these? Do I offer a stream of unbroken praise or do I share a well-chosen criticism of his latest song? You know, to show him I'm a fan, but not some sycophant who's too afraid to give it to him straight. The rock scribes needn't have worried because Mick's entrance was difficult to miss. A low grumbling roar starts to swell and then a circle of people fall into the room backwards, all of them facing Mick Jagger and his wife Bianca. Flashbulbs strove the room. It's the kind of hysteria usually associated with silver screen era movie stars like Liz Taylor and Marilyn Monroe. After a great deal of persuasion, the STP tactical squad have convinced Mick to put in an appearance, and will follow that edict to the letter. Upon entering the room, he just keeps walking, moving steadily, until he's at a side door and riding back downstairs in an elevator before anyone knows what's happened. A real pro move. Keith's entrance is more understated. He collapses in a chair next to Greenfield, one of the only people he knows. For him, this is all wearing on him. But then again, that's the game. I mean, that is the music business. You know, that is where it is at. You know, that's when you really are the product, the merchandise. Really and that's when you realize it. And, you know, which, that's one of the reasons that makes New York a very depressing town for, for the Stones to be in, to be working. It was increasingly rare that the Stones would trouble themselves to visit journalists. More often than not, the mountain would come to them. The most obvious example of this is Dick Cavett. The late night host had offered to dedicate his entire 90-minute show to a sit-down with Mick. In an era of three television networks, this was a major coup. Heck, John Lennon and Yoko Ono had made a similar appearance the previous year. But staying true to his beloved showbiz maxim, always leave him wanting more, Mick, well, technically Gary Stromberg, refused. He was far too busy for that kind of thing. And besides, it was unthinkable for a star of his magnitude to wander so far outside his own frame of reference. Mick, via Gary, invited Dick to accompany the band on the road, a la Truman Capote and co., but Dick is also a star and doesn't have time to go traipsing across the nation with a rock and roll band, regardless of how famous. It became like negotiating a state visit. Finally, it was decided that the New York-based talk show host would come downtown and drop by the Stones' dressing room at Madison Square Garden. The conversation got... weird. This was largely due to the drugs they flaunted fairly openly. Bill Wyman smoked a joint on air, transparently disguised as a cigarette. And when Cavett commented on a plate of pills going around, Mick joked that they were vitamins and salt tablets. He wasn't fooling anyone. Dick Cavett was a late night talk show host, very liberal, very progressive. You know, he had Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young on right after Woodstock with Joni. He was hip, you know, he was New York hip. And they let him in backstage at the garden to talk. And he conducted an interview with Jagger, which I think you can probably see somewhere on YouTube. It is a 
paradigm of madness because Mick is so jacked up. And Cavett knows how coked out Mick is. And I remember Cavett says, Mick was skin and bone by the end of the store. He was translucent. You could look through him. You know, he had been w working and sweating. You know, that's physical on stage, two and a half hours a night. Those arenas may have been air-conditioned, but with 18,000 people there, it didn't matter. It was hot. And he was working, and he was doing a lot of blow. And I remember Cabot saying to him, well, you know, at the end of the tour, he's so thin. What do you weigh now? And Mick said, 78 pounds. And <laughs> they both knew what they were talking about. And the subtext of it, if you watch it now, it's all about drugs, you know, without them ever mentioning that it was about drugs. Truman Capote, not one of the Stones' favorite people, has returned by this point, dressed in a buff jacket and a jungle hat. It's clearly his attempt at rock and roll chic, but in truth, he looks like a sheriff. He sits backstage with Jackie O's sister, the Princess Lee Razawil, and also Andy Warhol. Even Mick Jagger, the most upwardly mobile of the band, who seems to openly court the jet set, is thrown by their presence. All that living within New York society is like living in a fucking spider's web. It's awful. It's really unbearable. I have this incredibly distinct memory of Truman Capote and Andy Warhol sitting next to one another backstage, and somebody said, oh, look, it's the elder vampires. <laughs> and that's what they looked like. <laughs> So I, you know, the reason we're doing this today, if you need a, you know, raison d'etre, is you're not going to see these people on the road anymore. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was good. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Oh! Jean! 
Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and sociopolitical factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that Gangster Rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Rolling Stones stage manager Chip Monk is hellbent on making the final show of the STP tour the craziest onstage moment in rock and roll history. And he will stop at nothing to achieve this goal. Initially, he rented an elephant for 700 bucks. Now, that might sound steep, but this isn't just any elephant. No, this elephant is trained to walk up steps. Chip has it all worked out perfectly. At the end of the band's set, the elephant will come out on stage, surprise Jagger, then bow and present him with one perfect long-stemmed rose. Then everyone will sing happy birthday and the elephant will pat Nick on the head and leave. Beautiful. Makes the seven C notes seem worth it. Then the Madison Square Garden authorities get wind of it. No elephant. Elephants are for the circus. What happens if the beast gets enraged by the unruly crowd? and runs wild and horribly mangles a brace of teeny boppers. Did you think of that? Okay, fine, Chip concedes, no elephant. What about dropping stuff on the crowd from the ports and the ceiling? This is a favorite Chip pastime. There is nothing he loves more than dumping assorted goodies from the roof. Beach balls, confetti, maybe even flour. The garden authorities don't like this either. No beach balls or balloons, they say. The kids will start throwing them at one another, and we'll have a riot on our hands. Maybe confetti. Maybe. But their lack of enthusiasm is infectious, and Chip goes off confetti. This is when, according to Gary Stromberg, Chip has another brainwave. The conclusion of the tour was in, at New York in Madison Square Garden. So we're planning a big event in celebration of Jagger's birthday, and Chip comes up with the idea of releasing live chickens from the ceiling of Madison Square Garden. The idea being that chickens don't fly, they <laughs> flutter. Yes, they flutter down. And if you release them from the, from the thing, it's not going to kill the chickens, but the chickens are going to all flutter down upon the audience. And let's see what happens when an audience is presented. And I forgot how many he ordered, but he ordered hundreds of live chickens from New Jersey, which were sent in trucks to the garden. Chip had this all worked out. He hired guys to place them in the rafters. He was had a way of gonna he was gonna release them on cue, and they were gonna float down on this audience, and we were gonna watch this audience totally freak out. Well, he got caught doing this, getting it in, in the preparation of it, and got stopped from doing it. It was to his great disappointment. 
but in my mind, this was going to be the great event of the, of the entire tour. Chip has tried to convince the MSG bigwigs to let him have his chicken storm by promising to dip each and every one of their claws into wax, thus preventing them from clawing anyone's eyes out. The garden authorities aren't moved, and they respond by sealing off access to the roof entirely. Chip is outraged. For him, this is the quintessential conflict between free spirits and the man. To the garden, rock and roll is just another set of gate receipts. But this is supposed to be something more, much more. Something wilder, freer, looser. And the straights are getting in his way. He's despondent. New York, supposedly the crown jewel in the tiara, is turning out to be a rhinestone. A cheap, gaudy rhinestone. Between the elephant and his chickens, Chip has spent nearly $1,300, or $10,000 in today's money, on miscellaneous animals that would ultimately go unused for STP purposes. People like tour manager Peter Rudge are concerned, but not unduly so. See, the tour has succeeded in its original purpose of making the Rolling Stones a great deal of money, enough to take a bite out of their gargantuan back tax bill. According to Robert Greenfield, the STP tour grosses around $3 million, with a million going towards expenses. When all the appropriate folks are paid and the taxes levied, this leaves the Stones with a quarter million dollar profit each. Not bad for 60 days of work. The math comes out to $28,000 a week. This might not sound like much today, but it's twice the annual salary of most middle-class families back in 1972. But still, Mick starts to grumble when he gets word that Led Zeppelin, those relative new kids on the rock and roll block, are getting 90% of their gate receipts. The Stones only get 70. Oh well, next tour. But now they gotta finish this one. Jagger's 29 today, the age at which Nijinsky performed for the last time in public. Backstage at Madison Square Garden, there's a massive cake, which doubles as an end-of-tour cake. It's shaped like the United States and has little flags marking each tour stop. All of the STP regulars are wearing purple t-shirts tonight, with their names and jobs listed on the back. They mass outside the dressing room for a graduation photo of unparalleled weirdness. Here they are, 38 people from various levels and various places, who will almost certainly never be in the same physical space again. There was nothing like the finale. Because they were done. They were smelling the barn. Yes. They were going home, man. I'm out. <laughs> home stretch. Home stretch. And bro. his birthday. It was yeah. his birthday. So yeah. It was a big celebration. And the pie fight afterwards was... Uh, right, we didn't talk about the pie fight. pie fight was great. Well, Chip didn't get his chickens. Didn't get his chickens, where but he got the, the pies. Where did the pies come from? That I don't know. Chip has not given up on Operation Onstage Outrage. After being denied roof access, he toyed with ways to create chaos on the ground. An early scheme involved tossing as many amyl nitrate capsules as he could find along the front of the stage and then running them over with a steamroller. With a little luck, he'd get the band in the first few rows high. But this wouldn't consume quite enough people. So he switched to something a little more down and dirty a pie fight. 
It's old-fashioned, yes, and some would even say crude, but on the other hand, it's a classic. Chip obtains 154 pies, which he leaves around the backstage area in advance of showtime. When the garden authorities discover this, they freak out and remove them immediately. Off the stage, Chip, off! Shame on you, you naughty boy. Chip pleads his case before giving up, angry and crestfallen. He's playing his part perfectly. The pies that are confiscated are the ones the garden officials are supposed to find. Chip has a whole other load hidden in boxes behind the amps. It's on. He rounds up his crew just before showtime to instruct them on proper pie throwing form. Okay, you're paired off. Each pair is assigned an artist. The first person approaches the artist and whoop whoop, got it? The face is out of bounds, but the head, neck, and chest are permissible targets. Only Chip Monk would have an elaborate procedure for throwing a pie. In fact, he's so preoccupied with his tutorial that he very nearly misses the opportunity to make his trademark introduction one final time. Ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stone. Right from the start, Mick is leading it. Keith shouts, come on, let's get it, as Bobby Keys jumps up and down on the side of the stage. The decibel count rises six above the pain level, at least according to the New York Times report the following day. Pure white light bathes the band for the final time as they finish up Street Fighting Man. Then they walk off with the garden shaking like a building in flames after a direct buzz bomb hit. An encore with Stevie Wonder, duetting on a raucous medley of uptight and satisfaction, takes everything to a whole new level. Backstage, the crew are drinking their farewell case of Dom Perignon. Tour manager Peter Rudge steers the garden heavies into a dressing room for a victory drink. As soon as they're out of the way, Chip Monk gets down to business. There have been memos within the STP community as late as this afternoon to suggest that there be no pie throwing on stage tonight. What with the threats on mixed life and all. But Chip will have his fun. It starts innocently at first. He wheels a tray with a birthday cake and champagne onto the stage. Mick's wife, Bianca, comes forward and gives Mick a birthday kiss. Then the crowd of 20,000 begins to sing happy birthday. It's all going according to plan. Then, whoop! Chip hits him with a pie. The boxes come open backstage and all hell breaks loose. Jagger gets one on the arm and then throws one at drummer Charlie Watts, who ducks. Soon the stage is covered with a quarter inch of cream. It's everywhere, oozing and sticking. Charlie sits behind the drum kit, somehow unscathed. Then a roadie, so covered with pie that he looks like Frosty the Snowman, plants one large pie on either side of Charlie's head. They hang there for a second like pastry earmuffs, then slowly slide off, leaving great mounds of fluffy white behind. Charlie takes it in stride, but Keith Richards is not amused. Breaking the rules never bothered him but something about this messy sophomoric act bothers him. He said as much to Robert Greenfield back in 1972. Here he is, courtesy of the Northwestern University Archives. I mean, the pies, I didn't dig the idea of the pies at all. I mean, I thought it was very inconsiderate, you know, especially to people in Stevie's band that got their instruments covered in banana cream, you know, I mean, to, 
It's no joke to have to clean a saxophone that's been covered in banana cream. You know, really, it's a fucking drag. And I don't think anybody was really considerate enough of that, you know. So you were American scary if that was bad. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Because of that attitude. <laughs> Nobody was crazy enough to. No, I tried to make it obvious when I saw what was going on, you know, that I didn't really approve of it, you know, and I thought that, that the musicians were very were extremely good natured to, to put up with it, you know. The madness continues into the backstage corridors. A pie-smeared, hysterical Gary Stromberg busts into the celebrity-filled dressing room and fires one across the room. But his target ducks, and he winds up hitting Jackie O's sister, the Princess Lee Razawill, and also Andy Warhol. Meringue and cream streaking his beard and hair, Gary's now sightless, his glasses having been broken and lost somewhere. He's also barefoot, his boots having become so filled with pie slop that they were unwearable. Smelling like a bakery, he runs outside and hails a cab back to his hotel. Then the driver turns around and gets a good look at him. All right, the driver says calmly, get the hell out. The official STP after party at the St. Regis Hotel wasn't the kind of shindig where you could show up covered in cream pie residue. Which, to be honest, was the first sign that this wasn't the right kind of party for the Rolling Stones. It was organized by Ahmet Erdogan, the legendary music kingmaker, founder of Atlantic Records, and overseer of the Stones label. He was the man who helped popularize some of the biggest R&B names of all time. Ray Charles, The Coasters, Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Aretha. Take your pick. He also threw the Stones a ripping party when he visited the tour in New Orleans, hosting authentic Delta blues men for the band's immense pleasure. But now he was back on his home turf in New York, where he moved in a different sort of social circle. Namely, high society high rollers and jet-setting beautiful people. These folks had little to do with the Stones. This was the kind of do where music freaks felt compelled to put on a tie. It was both the most fitting and least fitting end to the first tour of the modern rock era, an event that went a long way towards bringing the counterculture into the mainstream. So Ahmet puts on the party to celebrate Mick's 29th birthday, starlight roof of the St. Regis Hotel. Can I read the guest list? Okay. I have to because Good. there's no other way to reconstruct this. So here's the guest list, right? No one knows who Jaja Gabor is anymore, which is great. She was a, a early version of Kim Kardashian with her sister, yeah, yeah Ava. All right, so um, she had a picture taken with Bob Dylan, and she said, "Darling, when you're hot, you're hot." She also had an accent. Anyway, so here's <laughs> here's Ahmed and Mika Erdogan. Here's their guest list: <clears throat> Lord Hesketh. Of of Easton Naston Castle, Isabel and Freddie Eberstart making their first New York appearance in years. Gianni Bolgari, the famous jeweler, I believe. Uh, Andrea de Portigo with nothing on underneath her white satin pants and open to the waist satin jacket. Oscar and Francois de la Renta, the great fashion designer, great friends of the Erdogans. Graziella Lobo, we all know her. Count Vega del Ren. Mrs. Walther Maria Salas, CZ and Winston Guest, socialites, uh, Catherine Millenaire, fashionista, Lady Slim Keith, 
Nita Garini Maldini, Clyde and Maggie Newhouse, Newhouse, sorry, Clyde and Maggie Newhouse, and many, many others as a gossip columnist named Susie said, quote, were too straight to mention. Woody Allen, Carly Simon, Sylvia Miles, Dick Cavett, Andy Warhol, Peter Beard, Truman Capote, Candy Darling, one of Warhol's superstars, Pat Ast, another of them, Huntington Hartford of the A&P Fortune. Guys don't know what A&P is. It was a supermarket. He had a museum named after him, Huntington Hartford. Yeah. yeah, it's out here. Yeah, okay. George Plimpton, Tennessee Williams. Oh, my God. Wow. If I could say this now, like... I didn't th- know that. This combination of people, which was an Ahmed special, because he knew everybody on every level of society, the high, low, and the middle... It was the coronation. And then, of course, a, a topless woman dropped out, jumped out of the cake that they gave Mick. It was, it was a fake cake, obviously, and the party went on. The Stones were overwhelmed by the crush of people, few of whom they'd ever met before. For Mick Taylor, it didn't make a lot of sense. There were so many interesting people at that party, and I never got a chance to talk to any of them. Speak to anybody, Joshua Boy. Well, you probably know more about it than I do because I'm not American. But that kind of thing happens in New York quite frequently, doesn't it? I've never well not New York High Society. No, but New, York, New York High Society. So I suppose we must be respectable. I mean, it was kind of sad. That's what I want to say. I don't know. I want to know. You have to have a memory of this. A vague memory of this. What you're saying now is bringing it. Because all these people had nothing to do with the tour. Yeah. And they would have gone to any gig that Ahmed Meek had invited them to. But that was the beginning of who the Stones are now. And the Stones were certainly unimpressed by all of this. Oh, they could have cared less. I mean, Chris O'Dell was sitting with Mick and Bianca. I mean, it was still if they knew you, they knew you. If they don't know you, man, it doesn't matter who you are. No, the only folks who turned the Stones on were the evening's entertainment, big band icon Count Basie, and Muddy Waters. Muddy was enough to make them cry. After all, it was his song, Rolling Stone Blues, that provided a name for these five Englishmen being honored tonight, ten long years ago. Count Basie's orchestra was a little further from the Stones' musical sensibilities, But according to Keith Richards' frequent tour co-conspirator, Bobby Keys, he fit right in with the rock and roll lifestyle. I stayed there quite a bit of time. I snorted up at least a half an ounce of coke with all the Basie's band. Did you? Yeah, I went went backstage behind the set when Basie was there and this guy that was laying all the coke on us and everything, pure pharmaceutical. Really good. I went back and started out with just the drummer. Before I knew it, everybody in the band had to know something. Bill Basie has the biggest nose of all. <laughs> and it was so beautiful, man. It I mean, is nice. I felt, I mean, sitting there listening to Count Basie playing for a party in honor of the group that you're playing with makes you feel sort of funny in a way, you know? Because, I mean, to me, there is really a legend. The musicians may have hit it off, but overall, it was a funny crowd, few of whom actually stopped to listen to the likes of Muddy Waters or Basie. By and large, they were not music people. One society columnist described the scene as a clockwork orange meets the Manson family. 
That's a rather unflattering depiction of both sides, but even Bobby Keys agreed that the vibes were definitely off that night. I appreciate the trouble and all that shit that Ahmet went to for Mick's birthday party, but it would have been so much nicer to have had a party for the people that really worked their ass off on that tour, man, to show them some appreciation instead of catering to the in-crowd, finger-popping, lip-syncing society set. Really? You know, because, I mean, what the hell? They were just there just to say they were there at Mick Jagger's birthday party. When there were a lot of people on that tour, man, that worked their ass off, man, day and night. And they should have been given a little bit more consideration. Like there are people on that tour that I didn't, that I don't even know to this day their names. People I never even saw. Sure. Chip that, crew. That I would like to have personally met and express my gratitude, man, for you know the work they did that helped make it a lot easier on our, on all of us and everyone. But instead, man, there was just you know Andy Warhol and and Dick Cavett and all those people that didn't really have a fucking thing to do with the tour. You know, they were all like, okay, so they could have that party, but I thought we should have had another party. And I know Keith felt the same way, man. Robert Greenfield had a chance to verify this with Keith. I thought it was the wrong kind of party for an, you know, as it was, you know, all right, it's a, you know, a typical New York society bash for, for a rock and roll band, I guess, you know, for the Rolling Stones, it's yeah. what's to be expected, but I wish there'd been another one for just the people that have been on the tour to say goodbye to each other, you know with dignity instead of... Really, uh, amazing collection of people, however. I mean, I don't think you'll see Bob Dylan and Josh Gabor at the same time. Did you speak to Dylan? I met Brian. him uh, briefly in 66. Yeah, I spoke to him for quite a while. A coherent conversation, was it? Yeah. Bob Dylan has somehow neglected to get a mention as a party guest so far. A New York Times reporter asks him what he thinks of the gathering. In a straw hat, flannel shirt, and dark shades, the poet prophet of the 60s smiles and says, it's encompassing, it's the beginning of cosmic consciousness. He's more right than even he knows. It was precisely that, a coming together of people from all levels, with no mixing or interaction at all. A thousand separate parties are going on at the same time. Everyone's there to see and be seen, and honor their own egos. This party's not for the Rolling Stones, nor the black musicians they love. It's not for the people who wait hours in the street to see them, or the crew who work tirelessly in the shadows to make it all happen. It's a party for people who go to parties, for whom the world of music is nothing but an amusing, temporary, and bizarre source of pleasant conversation. For the STP crew, There's nothing to do but get high and drink as much as possible. One regular is so pissed off by the whole thing that he cuts eight phones into shreds, marking a tour record. Who are all these people, he wonders, and what do they have to do with rock and roll? Why is our assistant electrician sitting next to Zsa Zsa Gabor? As Robert Greenfield writes, this isn't a rock and roll party. It's a $10,000 a plate campaign dinner. I was expressing some kind of dismay at the party that ended the tour. Like, 
We have been here. We have suffered. We have had joy. Who are all these people? That's, yeah, <laughs> Gary understands what I mean. Like, Cosa Nostra. This was our thing. Who are all these strangers with money who are now in our house, you know? Let's throw a pie at them. <laughs> at 5 a.m. on a hot July morning in New York City, an insomniac crowd waits in the street outside the St. Regis. They're looking for a glimpse, a glance, or a touch. Maybe Mick, maybe Keith, maybe Bill, maybe Charlie or Mick Taylor. Michael Jagger was now 29. The next day, the newspapers would carry accounts of his birthday party. And people who weren't there would ask those who were, was it good? What happened? What was it like? But what they always left out was the way it felt. Desperate and futile, with people going around in circles and getting nowhere except more confused. It was empty and directionless, like a circus with no center ring. And above all, it's very, very sad. Like a wake where the mask of false gaiety hides the real grief. It felt like something had died. All that remained now was find someone who could identify the corpse. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and the last star on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. 
But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Three days after the tour ended, Stan the Man Moore, the Stones' chief of security, was back in San Francisco, waking up at 6.30 in the morning in order to get to his government job by 6. On the road, this is when he'd be going to sleep. But before long, he was solidly back in the rhythm of his quiet suburban life. When he talked about the tour, he had to get out the pictures of himself with Truman Capote and Lee Razawill in order to confirm that it had all really happened. He handled the DSTPification process better than most. So did the tour's extraordinarily indulgent physician, known for our purposes as Dr. L. He was soon back on his regular rounds, where he refrained from speaking about what he saw and did on the road, which is probably for the best. He began the scheme about establishing some sort of practice that was exclusively for rock and rollers. Now there's a thought. For some, the tour didn't end. Bobby Keys flew directly to London, and the next morning he was acting in a movie featuring Ringo Starr began working sessions and then flew to Detroit to go on the Joe Cocker tour with Jim Price. On the other hand, for STP Tax Squad member Joe Bergman, this was the end of the line. After spending five years of her life with the band, she walked out of the dressing room in New York City in tears, only able to mutter, it's been terribly strange. There was relief on the part of Rolling Stones records chief Marshall Chess specifically that they'd made it through without getting murdered. When the last show was over, Marshall walked to the East River and tossed the handgun he carried for protection. The end of tours are sad. Picture the last day of an especially magical summer camp and magnify it by a thousand, and you still won't even come close. There were folks for whom it was the experience of a lifetime. And then it was over, just like that. Those steeped in the rock biz had people to talk to and share the experience with afterwards. But for many, they had no one. And they found reintegration into everyday life lonely and confusing. One of the things that, that, that I most remember about a tour is when it ends. Mm. And all of a sudden, the shock of you don't have anywhere to go tomorrow morning. Or you wake up in the morning, there's nobody there, you know, to collect your luggage or, or do any of that stuff. It stops. It just comes to a stop. And that's shocking uh, on your system. You're just not used to it. We're eight weeks now. We're doing this every day, getting up in the morning, you know, moving this show along, trying to shake off the hangover from the <laughs> night before. Uh, you know, looking at your card on the desk, uh, you know, on the bedside Thing to see, see where what, you are. See where you are. You don't know where you are. Every city, you know, it's a different city every day. You don't know where you are. And then all of a sudden you wake up and it's over. It's a shock. So it was a combination of not being 
on the road with the most amazing, interesting people that you'd ever met, and every day is fun, and they're gonna play again, you're gonna be on stage watching them. You get into the routine on such a level that you're addicted to the routine, as well as everything, and the excitement, and the, you know, the power, and the glory. This wasn't the only form addiction could take. Habits picked up on the road accompanied many into their everyday life, where they were less tolerated. For some, it was purely a practical matter. It was tough for STP vets to get back into the time schedule that the rest of the world calls normal. They needed something to get them up, and then something to send them off at night, creating a nightmarish push-pull of pills that wrought havoc on one's physiology and psychology. For others, the drugs were self-medication, a synthetic version of the rush they felt while on tour with the biggest band in the world. Isolated, disoriented, and depressed, many retreated into substances for relief. The reasons were varied, but according to Gary Stromberg, drug abuse and addiction was an unexpected and all-too-common outcome of the STP tour. Physically, it was... It was a, there was a real uh, price to pay for it, uh, which, uh, I mean, I was not even remotely aware of when I started. Because it did, like I said, I lost a lot of weight. Uh, psychically, I was in bad shape. I, I literally did get kidnapped at the end of the tour from friends in New York who tricked me into going on a boat to Fire Island, on which they anchored and went ashore and left me there. I was there for three days to detox and to, they had food on the, on the boat, and uh, it was a sailboat. And I was just there to you know, take care of myself. And so it took me a, longer than three days to recover from that physically. Um, emotionally, I was drained. It was exhausting. It was really exhausting. And because you were in the middle of it, you never sensed it until it was over. Like I said, that drop off it when it was over was really severe emotionally. Within a week, he was back in his office answering phones and planning publicity for the T-Rex tour, secure in the knowledge that he had engineered the rock PR job of the year, if not the decade. He was thinner than he'd ever been, and he coughed a lot. Someone asked his business partner if he'd noticed a change in Gary after the STP tour. Yeah, came the reply. He doesn't laugh as much anymore. Even Keith Richards struggled to acclimate to his decidedly more quiet life as a tax exile in Switzerland. He also had the legal mess of his drug problems in the French Riviera to iron out. By the end of the year, official warrants were out for Keith's arrest. Though little came of it, he would be busted the following June at his home in London's Chelsea neighborhood. The real world was certainly less kind than the cocoon of road life. Very strange going back to so quiet, so especially to Switzerland, which is so orderly and respectable and neat. And, you know, the shock, you know, real shock. Must have taken a long time to come down. Uh, yeah. Did you stop sleeping? I mean, what happened by the end? Or yeah. Was it uh, no, in New York, I started to go into really long 
sleeps. After the last show, sleep 14 hours, go up for 8 hours and then collapse again. I mean, it was tough because it was the longest one we'd ever done, you know. But it didn't affect me any, or noticeably anybody else in the band. You know, it seems that everybody knows how much energy they have to conserve to keep themselves going. And, and everybody's got an amazing stamina. Life went on for all concerned, or at least most. But there was a distinct sense that a transformation was occurring. The record-breaking sales figures of the Stones' 1972 tour hipped many to the fact that rock and roll was now serious business, in every sense. The open-hearted aura that had characterized the music community in the 60s had begun to calcify into something harder. So Chipmunk, who we cannot quote enough in my mind, Chipmunk said to me at some point that here's when he knew the 60s were over. He was sitting at a big dinner table and he laid out the plate of of cocaine, man, you know, chopped it up, and he rolled up a $100 bill, as one did in a day, and he sent the plate around. And the plate went around the table. When he came back, all the cocaine was gone, and it was a $1 bill. That speaks volumes. There would be more rock tours, for sure. Many staged by the Stones themselves and their English rock brethren. But as far as Robert Greenfield and Gary Stromberg are concerned, there would never be another track like it. There couldn't be. No. No. There's always going to be a first, and this you can't recreate the first. The reason this can't be replicated, if I could say. And just, it's so back to context. This is the next step up yeah. for the business of yeah. rock and roll on, on tour. And that can't be, you can't replicate the first time. First time, yeah. They take a place, they take a country by storm, and it's all positive. Fortunately, the historic outing was preserved by legendary avant-garde filmmaker Robert Frank. Unfortunately, the resulting documentary which for reasons of decorum will temporarily rechristen Rock Sucker Blues, is almost impossible to track down for viewing. It featured some less than savory moments, including a woman shooting smack, Keith nodding off, and Mick doing lines. Viewers were also treated to Keith and Bobby Keys shot putting a television out a hotel window, and also a deeply unsettling scene depicting an orgy on the Stone's private jet. Most of this was done at the behest of the director, whose film was decidedly darker than most people's memories of the tour. Uh, it's certainly worth seeing. Uh, much of it is not true. Much, I mean, true, it happened. It was staged, okay? And point of uh, reference here, uh, for no reason, Mick and Bobby Keys did not throw a television set out of the riot house, as other people have said. It was in Denver. Correct. This is before they were drinking tequila sunrises at 11 a.m. in the morning. Robert asked them to do this. Now, he's an artist. He was making a movie about his artistic vision of what Keith nodding out is real. That's real. But the group, he's on the plane. This was all staged. What I would object to is that he had this vision of what this thing should be, right. and he filmed it to fit that vision, as opposed to just you know, experiencing or witnessing what was going on. And he wasn't interested in the onstage performances. No, not at all. That's not, right. It's not a music doc. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go for the music. 
Robert Frank, whose most famous work up to this point had been gritty black and white photos depicting income inequality in the United States, was well aware that his film cut a little close to the bone. While talking to Robert Greenfield back in 1972, he shared his doubts that Mick Jagger, one of the most image-conscious musicians of his generation, would want this out there. Here he is, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. Yeah, well, the question would be whether they will accept it. I mean, I'll put it together and I'll put these scenes in, and, and that is their, their problem. They have a lot of legal problems. I mean, how would you feel being filmed, uh, well, just let's take the lowest thing, like sniffing coke. You know? mm. well, how would you feel? And who I was, me as who I am now, I probably would be upside down. Well, I wouldn't care, because it would be me. But I may, might have cared 10 years ago. Now I, I find it totally unimportant. It doesn't matter. And I think Jagger will be, uh, I think he will think that way. He will say, well, I can't use the film now, but I'll use it in five years from now. It would take Mick a lot more than five years to accept Frank's incriminating cinema verite depiction of the STP tour. The gratuitous on-screen substance abuse was not exactly helpful given the looming drug convictions in southern France. Further legal hassles would jeopardize their ability to travel to the United States, which is where the Stones made their real money. No good. Simply put, they didn't need this. They were fully aware of the outcry that had greeted their 1969 tour documentary, Gimme Shelter, which captured the murder of a fan while the Stones performed at the Altamont Speedway. The band ultimately filed an injunction against Frank, which allowed him to show his film only four times a year, and only with Frank himself present, thus kneecapping any chance at a wide release or commercial success. Well, okay, so what's the point of this? Jagger invited one of the great photographers of the 20th century, a guy who had made a movie called Me and My Brother that's considered groundbreaking. And he allowed him complete access, and then it could only be shown with Jagger's permission. Oh. could oh, be correct. shown once a year. Correct. Yes, that's correct. You know how long it was buried? The genius of Mick Jagger. I bring in a great artist, I give him access, and then, and then you can't, it, you can't it, see it. And it created a huge demand for it. That's all. <laughs> huge. That said, Greenfield would discover that there was not a demand for a written account of the STP tour. At least not at first. The title of the book for me always was STP, full colon, uh, Journey Through America with the Rolling Stones. When I wrote the book, and I will uh, advertisements for myself, uh, first full-length book ever written about a rock tour. You know, they weren't publishing books about rock and roll. And even in 1972-73, Rolling Stone was where you read about rock and roll, Crawdaddy, Cream. It was, again, rock and roll is for those, you know, kid. They don't buy books. I couldn't get a deal from Straight Hour Press, Rolling Stone Magazine's publishing house. I pitched the guy, hey, man, I'm going on this tour. I always wanted to write books. I, I could do a book. I remember his name. Not going to mention. No, uh, not really interested. Greenfield's persistence paid off, and STP was published in 1974. It continues to be a touchstone for rock fans and journalists across the generations. For Greenfield... The Stones tour set him on a course he's maintained to this day. You know, I didn't suffer physically like Gary did, but if I look at it now, it enabled me to start my adult life because I was able to 
move somewhere and write a book and, you know, write a chapter a week. And that's what I'd always wanted to do. Got to write about Amit and Jerry Wexler and Jerry Garcia. And so I kept doing some journalism, but ever since then, basically been able to write books, which is all I ever wanted to do. And I couldn't have done that without the Rolling Stones, you know. So I am so grateful, you know, that I was allowed access to be on that tour. In Bob's book, in STP, the, the, my favorite picture of me is oh. the picture of me with pile over my Smeared. face backstage. And I'm like this. I'm like in just in my, all of my glory. And Gary, Stromberg, over. Gary Stromberg in Excelsis. Ex- That's oh, what it was. yes. Yes, man. He's got but, a towel. His hair is so... He's, Covered, covered in, in whipped cream, whipped cream and pie. And my big, my most, my fondest memory is for my when my children first looked at that oh. and then looked at me like you're my father because they've only known me as a, a dad. You know, I, not I'm sober. I was never a, a drug addict when they were born. I was already sober, so they've never seen me in the in Excelsius. <laughs> <laughs> they've only seen me as a semi-normal you know, human beings. So it's hard to them to fathom. But when they saw that picture of me, they, my daughter, I can remember distinctly, my daughter looking at her, her eyes just like, are you my dad? Gary's happiness at home was hard won. The early intervention from his friends, who sequestered him on a boat to dry out, didn't have the desired effect. By Gary's own admission, he went from 100% messed up to 30% messed up, or words to that effect. That figure would steadily rise throughout the decade, as it would for many STP vets. My drug addiction just was overwhelming at one point, and it just and it did me in. I mean, I lost my whole business because of my drug addiction. There was a movie called Dancing As Fast As I Can. That's really what I was doing in this business. And that's what the business was largely like. It was dancing as fast as I could. And then because of the drug addiction, you just run out of gas. It, I couldn't do it anymore. Uh, and, and then all kinds of problems. You know, I, I wasn't paying attention to my money. I wasn't paying attention to the employees that work for us. And the company, I blew the company up. My partner and I blew our company up. You know, we lost the a thriving business because we were really dancing as fast as we could, not paying attention. It took about a year for me to lose a, a house, you know, all of the trappings of success. It took about a year for it all to turn to, to shit. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. My life turned to shit. I danced for a long time. Hmm. How long have you been sober here? I'm going to be 40 years sober. Uh, coming January. I'll be 40 years sober. I've lived half of my life as a sober man. So I want to I want to tell the world that Gary Stromberg has written a really good book about celebrity recovery. Thank you. And as a well-known figure in AA, I have nothing but love and respect for what he's done with you his too. life having seen him because as he pointed out to me before we began this adventure, he looked at the book and the way I described him in the book is Gary Stromberg, comma, wasted. <laughs> And that's who he was. Yeah, if I wrote my own life story, that's probably what I would call it. There's a restaurant called Dantana's. It's a very popular music business. And literally, you could do drugs wherever you went back in the day. And you go to Dantana's, and the place would be filled with people in the music business and 
performers as well and take a, 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 a coffee saucer cup and turn it over and just pour cocaine into it and snort it in front of everybody. It didn't matter. And I remember one night, I was just so arrogant at that. The, uh, I did the $100 bill that was a, a busboy who was standing watching while we were snorting coke, passing that plate around with the cocaine. And I had a $100 bill and I was, I was snorting it and I was watching him watch me and I took my, a match and I lit the $100 bill and just held it up while he watched, just saying, here, how's this? <laughs> I was an idiot. I have no, I mean, I didn't see anything coming. I never saw any of this coming. I just thought it was all going to be fun and games forever and that this, this dance would go on forever. I never knew that. Uh, I had no, nobody, that's the other thing, I guess, about the music business. You don't go to school to learn how to do this. You don't learn, go to school to learn how to buy, be a rock star. All of this is brand new. You're inventing it as you're going along. So I was aware that we were inventing this as, as I went along, but I thought I was smart enough to, you know, that I could keep this thing going. I did not for a second understand that the drugs that I was you know, addicted to would turn on me. Never understood that until it did. But having said that, and I'm here to talk about Gary, he was on that tour and he was totally functional. Oh, and I could, yeah, I was a high-functioning drug addict. Right. Yeah, which a lot of people are, but that's uh, actually probably the worst kind because I lasted a long time. I, I could dance a long time before it, yeah, it took over. The SCP tour would be Gary's last time entrenched with the stones on the road. But it wasn't the last time that members of the Stromberg clan would party with the Stones on tour. Next time, it was Gary's parents. After the tour was over, this was two years later, my father had never been on an airplane before. And I had now be, was doing well in my business and started to make some money. And I sent my parents on a trip to Europe that I was so happy to be able to pay for. A tour of, 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 I don't know how many countries, a few countries in Europe, and it ended up in Amsterdam. And they were at a hotel in Amsterdam where the Stones were. The Stones were, like, this is, must have been 1974 tour of Europe. Mm -hmm. and, and just by coincidence, Keith saw my parents' name on the hotel registry. And he called up my parents' room, and my mother answered, and he said, are you related to Gary Stromberg? And they said, yes, that's our son. And he said, well, we're having, you know, we're the Stones. We're having a party after our show. You are welcome to come. So my mother got all excited, and they went to the after party that the Stones threw in that hotel. <laughs> Keith greeted them, like was really cordial to them. And my mother called me from this hotel, said, we went to this amazing—I was stunned. We went to this amazing party with the Rolling Stones. She said, but it was so smoky, and it smelled weird, and your father got very dizzy, so we left. <laughs> How old were they? What do you think? 60s. That is so sweet, huh? It, shows it was you the sweetest thing, and I couldn't believe Keith did this. Just never said anything to me about that he had done it. And just, I mean, what a kind thing to do, see my parents' name. And he calls their room. It's amazing. He also, that was the, that's also who he was, by the way. He had a real generous spirit and a sweetness about him that was, uh, I don't think most people were aware of. For Greenfield, however, there were still a handful of Stones encounters to come. While working on his STP book, he visited the band around Christmas 1972 in Jamaica. 
the only place that would grant Keith a visa at the time. There, they recorded the follow-up to Exile on Main Street, Goat's Head Soup. The sessions were tense. Keith's addiction was taking hold, and Mick Taylor was beginning to go a similar direction. He would depart the group two years later, a choice he'd cite as critical to his survival. If Exile was the peak of the Stones' most fruitful period, this new record was the start of the decline. It was just chaos and anarchy, and they functioned like that for a long time. It kept going. I was with them in Kingston because they couldn't come to America. They were all under the indictments. They had to testify as material witnesses in France. They didn't get much done at Kingston. They recorded at Byron Lee's Dynamic Studios in Trenchtown at a time when the killing going on there was terrifying, so that didn't work. It goes on and on. Black and Blue was recorded in Germany. There's this whole period after exile where they are basically lost and searching. And then they're in New York. Mick and Keith are living in New York together separately, you know, but they're both... They're going downtown, having dinner. They're not famous suddenly. They're not superstars. It's not like 72, it keeps going up. Nobody, everybody misses the second act in the Stones thing. And it was a long second act. They're kind of like old, nobody cares. Oh yeah, you know, punk comes in, makes fun of all those guys, you know, Rod Stewart, they're all washed up, they're, who cares? But they don't stop. And because they don't stop, they reemerge. And I can't pin the tour but then the tours start getting bigger and bigger and much more profitable. And they're in Europe and playing to 50,000 people. And they're out as we speak. And again, I'll quote Bill Graham forever because nobody was smarter, you know. But we were talking about them and he said to me, it sounds so simple, but it's so brilliant. He said, you know, Bob, if they weren't any good live, nobody would want to see them. So they've, they've crossed generations, multiple generations. People bring in their kids. But really, it's because Mick is still able to sing and dance on stage. People bring in their grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> Greenfield's STP book ends with an unsettled line. For Jagger was a young man, just 30, and congratulations were not necessarily in order. It's a youthful sentiment pens before that all-important realization that aging isn't a sentence, but a privilege, one that many of their friends and tourmates were never afforded. The line has a very different meaning to Greenfield today. Well, I hope I die before I get old, man. That's what that is. It's just like... Was he 30? Or he was 20, 29. 29, 29 yeah. But by the time I wrote the, well, book, the book, maybe he was 30, but... I don't even know if I know what that line means anymore, you know. I mean, I was 26, you know, uh, 25, actually. I turned 26 in 1972 after the tour. So the spirit of rock and roll, that's what I'm talking about. The, the FU level of the, the kicking the door in, taking the hinges off, that rebellious attitude. But you got to grow up, you know what I mean? you got to grow older. And this was transitional for them in their own lives as well. But who'd have thought it would go on as long as it has? That's unbelievable. Nobody. By cosmic coincidence, the Stones announced their first collection of original songs in 18 years, shortly after the premiere of this podcast. 
Aside from Mick and Keith, it also features playing by Bill Wyman, who retired as the Stones' official bass player in 1993, and also the final performances of drummer Charlie Watts, who died in August of 2021. The album, called Hackney Diamonds, was released days before this taping, to enormous acclaim. Another tour is sure to come, but Robert Greenfield and Gary Stromberg won't be there. So July 26, 1972, Mick is 29, Yeah. final show in Madison Square Six Garden. Six bucks. I never saw him again. I have never gone to a Rolling Stones concert oh, since huh. 1972. And my people say to me, Bob, I've been invited, especially when uh-huh. I was working on Bill Graham's book, Bob. And why would I want to go see yeah, him? Yeah, that's what I was, I was saying. <laughs> yeah. I saw him. Was, yes. When they were great. And they're still great. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that you'd never seen him again. I haven't either. Never. I and same thing. I got invited and I didn't want to go. So we'll leave you where they left them, outside Madison Square Garden on July 26th, 1972. 7th Avenue is buzzing. 20,000 dazed and delighted fans have just seen the greatest rock and roll show of their lives. Try to recall the feeling. Your heart pounds, your head rushes, and your body practically levitates. A New York cop watches the mind-blown crowd depart. He shakes his head and spits in the street before nudging his partner. Look at him, he says, pointing out the best minds of the next generation. Go on, take a look. It's eerie, I tell you. They're in a, a state of euphoria. Executive produced by Noel Brown and Jordan Runtalk. Edited and sound designed by Noel Brown and Michael Alder June. Original music composed and performed by Michael Alder June and Noel Brown. With additional instruments performed by Chris Suarez, Nick Johns Cooper, and Josh Thane. Vintage Rolling Stones audio, courtesy of the Robert Greenfield Archive at the Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections in Northwestern University Libraries. Stones Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, what's good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.